If you do the homework in advance, you're going to have less anxiety. The extreme preparation has been the core to my success. Hi, everyone, and welcome to this episode of the podcast in partnership with the awesome Najahi Events and Vault Hill, our new sponsors. We're in LA on the other side of the pond. My God, jet lag's been affecting me no end. With an 11-hour time difference to Dubai, it really has taken its toll. But you don't want to know about that. You want to know about today's guest, and you should do. Randall Kaplan is one of the greatest entrepreneurs we've ever had on the show. Let me give you a bit of a rundown and background to this guy. So he's the founder and CEO of Jump Investors, a venture capital firm. He's invested in more than 60 early to late stage tech companies. He's in real estate, private equity, hedge funds, and public equities. He's also the founder and CEO of Sandy, a travel company focused on the promotion of beaches. We're like a beach in Dubai, don't we? He's the co-founder and CEO of Thrive Properties and the owner and CEO of uh, Collacard. Okay, and the co-founder of Akamai technologies. I mean, what's this guy been doing? He's a serial entrepreneur, clearly, but he's super wise. He knows a lot about investing in startups. He knows a lot about the tech world. And for a lot of us, when we're in business and we want to grow, we don't know how to raise capital. We don't know how to get started with our business and take it to the level we want it to go to. Sometimes we find that ceiling that we get stuck. Well, Randall is the guy that's going to answer all of those questions. So let's cue the music and get stuck into this awesome episode. Vault Hill is the world's first human-centric metaverse that's opened its doors for brands and entities to launch their presence in the metaverse in only 48 hours. This is the fastest activation ever and the first time ever any metaverse has offered this. Upon this activation process, brands will receive free virtual land in Vault Hill City and can give life to their metaverse presence by buying buildings in the Vault Hill marketplace and deploy it on their dedicated VLand. Then brands can customize their land using unbounded creativity. They can display their own NFTs or upload different media, logos, or digital creations to start to capitalize from their digital assets. Go check out vaulthill.io. Thank you to Najahi Events, who have been sponsoring us now on the podcast for over a year. Najahi bring motivational speakers to the region to help inspire, educate, and motivate you to achieve better success and live a better life. First of all, thanks for coming to join us on the show today. It's good to have you here. Thanks for having me. I really appreciate it. How many times have you been a guest on a podcast? This is my fourth. Okay. And how did the other three go? I think they went okay. The first one, I was a little shaky, a little nervous. Then I became more of myself on the other one. So hopefully this will be my best one. <laughs> <laughs> we'll keep our fingers crossed. Now, I'm here in LA and this is your hometown. And uh, it's very, very different here to, to the Dubai where I live and the environment that I live in. I... I find the United States is that the, the people have a kind of different mindset in general. But when you come to LA, particularly to this part of LA, you see a lot of what you don't expect from the great America. You know, you see a lot of homeless people around and you see, you see poverty, which we don't, we don't really expect to see. Has that got worse over the course of the last few years or has that been like that for a long time? I moved out here in 1993, and when I came out here from law school, I knew nobody out here, and I didn't see a single homeless person out here. But homeless population has gotten a lot worse here. Uh, los Angeles is a homeless popular, the homeless capital in the United States. There's sixty to eighty thousand dollars, sixty thousand people a year 
homeless in LA right now living on the streets. It's become a serious problem. We live in a suburb which is very residential. It's affluent and there's homeless on the streets. There's homeless people in regular neighborhoods here. Someone went into a store in West Hollywood last year. Um, a homeless person on meth went into the store and stabbed and killed a 26-year-old woman from Brentwood who was working there part-time after she had just graduated from college. So things are definitely getting worse here and it's become a very, very serious issue. I still think Los Angeles is the greatest place in, in the world to live. I love living here. And as my wife and I have looked around, we have a lot of friends who have moved to Austin, Nashville, Miami, where it's considered, I guess, a little safer, or they want to get out of the rat race in LA, or they don't like the taxes here, or they moved to uh, Dallas. We, we looked around and thought, there's nowhere else we'd rather be. So we'll take Los Angeles for what it is. We love it here and we're not moving, ever. <laughs> That's really interesting. I look at, it just, it came out in the press last week that California as an economy overtook Germany recently as one of the largest economies in the world if you took California as a country. I think it's the fifth largest economy in the world of Which any is, state or region. So that's nuts, yeah? So you think about that, that's just mega. But yet you've got so many problems that money can solve. Who's going to pay for it? They keep increasing our taxes every year. And I think they're going to keep increasing it until the point where they take 90% of our money. And I still don't know if they'll be able to solve all the problems. Well, you see, you know, you see some of these big, big um, tech businesses that have got so much money and have done so well for themselves that could solve these kinds of problems. We saw um, over the last couple of years, companies like Klarna and whatnot bringing these these payment structures in where people can buy products and pay over three or four installments. These What are they called? Payment service? Payment plans. Payment service payment plans. And yet we saw today Apple announced that they're launching that exact same service to their customers where they've got 1 billion customers and interest-free people can make four installments. So there's definitely these big behemoths of, of businesses that actually, if they put their mind to it, could probably solve a lot of the problems that exist in these places where they've made so much money and done so well for themselves. It'd be amazing if they could do that. A lot of these are public companies. They have fiduciary duties to their shareholders and it'd be somewhat unusual. I think it'd be great if they could do it, but I don't know how they would say, um, Apple, we're going to give a billion dollars in Los Angeles to solve the homeless problem. It'd, it'd be amazing if someone were to do that. What I'd rather see is someone worth $100 billion or $50 billion who has some kind of love for a city where they grew up and say, all right, I've signed the giving pledge and now I'm going to give $10 billion to solving the homeless problem. And Los Angeles, New York City, whatever the case may be. So I think that's a way where companies wouldn't have to do it. The governments aren't going to do it, but you could really make a huge impact with those mm -hmm. kind of gifts. We haven't it's, seen those yet, but I hope they come. Yeah. It's, well, I look at it and, and I think that can these types of problems be solved with money? And often they can't. A friend of mine made a documentary in the UK where he lived on the streets for two weeks in the UK. And whilst living on the streets, he was an independently wealthy guy. He was in the military, came out, started a small construction company and did well for himself. And he started to get to know the people on the streets in the city he was staying. And towards the end of the two weeks, he offered them work. He said, I'll give you accommodation. I'll give you full time, full pay, uh, work that you can do. Okay, I'll give you a 12 month contract so you don't have to worry about unemployment. And they didn't want it. These people didn't want to take this opportunity to solve their problem. 
because they'd created this security almost or in the environment they had. You know, everybody had shunned them so much that they were outsiders and the homeless people were together and they were kind of safe in that community. And so going out and doing something else, they couldn't be sure if they could trust someone. So maybe it's not just money that solves it. There's a lot of, a lot of development work that has to take place as well as that. Well, there's two things about that I want to say first. Part of the homeless problem, you not only need to find the beds, you need the mental health facilities because a lot of these people have mental health problems mm -hmm. and you can't solve one without the other. Mm -hmm. So we need to find the beds and that's a very tough thing to do, especially in Los Angeles where property values are incredibly high. So it'd be very expensive to create those homes. Rick Caruso is running for mayor here. He said he's gonna establish 30,000 beds in the first 10 months, uh, he's in office, don't know if he'll win, but those kind of plans are phenomenal. I started an event in Los Angeles eight years ago with my friend, John Terzian, who owns nightclubs, uh, that benefits the homeless. So we take families in trans transitional uh, homelessness, we give them housing, training, medical care, uh, financial planning. In a homeless situation, the shelters don't usually take the whole family. So the parents go one way, the kids go another way. They're just not equipped for a family. Uh -huh. So we keep all the families together. Um, in a homeless situation, kids usually don't graduate high school. They almost never go to college. They end up, a lot of uh, the women get pregnant uh, early. Uh, they don't use birth control. They end up on the streets themselves, on welfare, a lot of them on drugs, mm -hmm. in prison, or dead. And it's just a horribly sad cycle of poverty that you just, it's very, very hard to fix. Uh, the organization that we raise money for keeps families together and does all these things for each other. So when we started fundraising for them eight years ago, we had eight families go through the program that year. And now we have over 300 families. We just had our function two months ago uh, it was phenomenal. We raised six hundred thousand dollars. Wow! It was amazing. Um, Imagine LA is the name of the organization, and the Imagine Ball is our function. Cool. And it's super fun. So, one family at a time. When you think about it, you make one family. You take one family out of homelessness, and you change the trajectory of their lineage forever. And that's very rewarding to be able to do that. Hmm. You've been arguably a mega successful entrepreneur. You've got a backstory <laughs> that, that people look at and, and can identify with because some people would have been on partially exposed to similar parts of that journey themselves. But you've gone on to do well for yourself. But uh, is business what matters to you? Are you kind of like a business first or does something else matter to you more? People ask me, what I'm most proud of and is making a difference in people's lives. So when I was 27 years old, I, I was a very unsuccessful lawyer. You and I were talking before the show. So I came to LA, I had $3,000 in the bank. I was laid off after five and a half weeks on the job. I hadn't even passed the bar exam yet. I was waiting for, for the results, I passed. But um, I had to find a job in Costa Mesa. I was living in Westwood. I never heard of Costa Mesa, Orange County, never knew what that was either. I would wake up at 5.30 in the morning, get there by seven, usually come back 11 or midnight every night. I was miserable. So after six months, I went to the managing partner downtown, said, I want to move. He said, no, you need to move there or leave. So I was looking for three jobs in 
eight months and just was, was miserable. I went to law school for the money. I wasn't passionate about that, but I came across a nonprofit called Bedsetic Legal Services, which, which provides free legal aid to the poor, sick, the elderly and uh, homeless in Los Angeles. I thought, all right, there we go. There's an organization. These are lawyers who are doing good. They're not doing it for the money. They're not charging whatever they charge. Charging the clients, by the way, to learn on their dime is the most crazy thing I've ever heard. I mean, you get out of law school, you know nothing, and you're put on some kind of a case, and the firms are billing you out at $300 per hour. Now it's $500 per hour. I mean, that's nuts. Mm. So I came across the organization, Bedside, and I thought, all right, there's a great organization that's helping real people. And I went to a black tie fundraiser and I said, and that fundraiser has historically raised $3 million in one night. All the law firms give, the investment banks, these are managing partners on the board of this nonprofit. And I went there and I said, you know what, I'm looking around at 1,000 people. They raised $3 million that night. Boring. You're in a tuxedo. I thought, why don't we do a fun one of these? We'll have a concert. We'll do it at the House of Blues. Uh, uh, that was a very cool venue. So I came up with the concept for the Justice Ball, and at age 27, called the House of Blues, the CEO, Greg Trojan, took 12 phone calls to get him to meet with me. I went in with the head of uh, Betsetic, and I said, I want to do this event. And he said, never going to happen. Why not? Because young people don't give. They're not interested in uh, charity. And I said, I don't believe that's true. You have to give them the access to do that. And so he gave us the venue for $22,000 on the night they were closed. We had a minimum food bar bill that we had to do, and we sold out that first night. Uh, it was a lot of work. We raised $96,000 that first year. And by year five, we had Billy Idol playing and had 3,500 people at the Museum of Flying in Santa Monica built the stage. It was crazy. I mean, it was like a concert going to Staples Center. It was so cool. So. That event now is, I think, in year 26 or 27. I think it's raised $8 million for Bedsetic. I ran it for 10 years. Then I did our new event uh, last eight years, uh, the Imagine Ball. But the most enjoyable part of my career has been the ability to give back and make a difference in people's lives. And that, that's the greatest good that I think you can do. And yes, I've made money and I've been successful. I've had a lot of failure too. And I hope, I hope we get to talk about some of that, but to be able to make a difference in someone's life is giving me more joy than anything I could ever think about except my kids. Don't you think that life deals strange hands to our psychology? Because what you described then started at what age for you? When did that make an impact in your life? How old were you? You know, I used to watch the muscular dystrophy te uh, telethon as a thing in the United States yeah. where uh, Jerry Lewis, who's a comedian and singer, I think he just passed away yeah, last yeah, week, last would week, raise yeah. money. It was on Labor Day. So people would go to um, uh, Channel 2 news station, you'd raise money locally, and then you would dump the money inside a, a bin. So my brother and I were doing that at eight years old, nine years old, 10 years old. We had a lemonade stand in the neighborhood and we would give, I think one year we gave $37 and one year we got up to $52. And that was really cool. And my mom was a part of that and we watched it and we just said, gosh, this is so cool. Why can't we do that? So it started at a young age. Okay. My uh, grandmother turns 104 year, uh, years old uh, in a few days, two days. 
uh, from now. And well, hold on, your grandmother's 104. <laughs> yeah, in two, two days. In two days. That's amazing. Uh, yeah, I'm flying to Detroit um, tomorrow, and and her birthday is November 2nd. So, she volunteered for uh, an organization. I forget what it's called in Detroit for 40 years. Uh, visiting uh, uh, sick people in the uh -huh. hospital. So I, I got to watch her as well. Wow. Great influence. See, I, I, see, I see that most people, it's kind of, well, traditionally in the UK, we start off with something called the, the round table. And the round table is for young guys to try and do something positive towards, you know, a charitable cause of some sort. And then you get to 41 and, you, you know, you, you're no longer allowed to be in the round table. So you have to go in something called the, the 41 club for a couple of years before you become a Rotarian. OK, and you move into the Rotary Club if you want to be in that kind of world. But what I've noticed over the years is lots of young people, they don't they don't get involved in something where they're giving back a lot the vast majority are kind of head down, tail up, wanting to go out there and smash it and become mega successful. And whether that's the, the bling watch, the bling house, the bling cars, whatever that may be, it's the bling life that they, what they want to live. And for me, it was like, as I got a bit older, I started to realize what mattered and what didn't matter. I started to look at things that money could buy as becoming less and less significant as time went by. You and I both sat here with our fancy sneakers on and, uh, <laughs> <laughs> and um when 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 you know that's about that's about the stretch of my spending when it comes to fashion you know it's like i don't even have the fancy watch that i put on anymore i just literally okay do this but for me it was kind of like go go hard make loads of money try and be really successful uh, and then realizing that actually that that didn't really matter so much and spending your time trying to help others live a better life or trying to solve the problems that other people had gave me a real selfish, I suppose, payback, a real reward myself. When people used to say, oh, you're doing such a good thing for others. I'm like, I'm doing a really good thing for me, trust me. And so I just wish I'd have learned that when I was younger. And I just wish most people that were out there trying to pursue success could incorporate that into their success at an earlier age. Have you? I know you did it at a young age, but is, is your experience with most people the same as mine? I think your experience would have been different if I had brought you the opportunity to get involved in the justice ball. Uh -huh. Because I think that it's not on people's mind. It's not on the forefront of their mind. And I think you're right. They're heads down. They're focused on their career. They work really hard. They don't have a lot of free time. When you're younger, you want to hang out with your friends. But young people, if given the opportunity to give back, I think most people would do it. Obviously, you need to pick a cause that uh, speaks to you. But I think there's plenty of those to go around. And so um, I still find that young people will get involved if you give them the opportunity. Okay. So try to give them the opportunity. Give them the opportunity. Show them something that you just triggered them. you just triggered something for me. I mean now I'm now what's going through my mind is people that I know that are young, okay, about how I can present the opportunity to them. And I hadn't I hadn't probably had that perspective on it before. You have the scale, you have the audience. You could host some uh event for young people. They'd love to meet you. You could get five hundred people there. You could call it a networking thing for kids in college or grad school or under 30 years old. And I'm telling you, if you presented them the opportunity. And you could even have five or six different nonprofits there give their pitch. And, but the nonprofits have to make it a little bit fun. Mm -hmm. And I think that's not the key. Not so stuffy, yeah. Not stuffy, not boring, yeah. lively. Uh, give them examples, do things a little different than they've done them before. 
Okay, let's move on to business for a second. I want to kind of pick your brains. First of all, just just so that the audience and everyone watching here right now understand, you're the most prepped person, okay, <laughs> in history, and you're proud to be that person that preps. And I'm the guy that does uh, my my consumption of content isn't is not through reading; it's through through listening and watching. And so I'll go out and since I arrived uh, on Saturday afternoon here, I've listened to as much content as I could and walked around this city with you in my ears. Okay. Yeah. While I've been trying to learn about you. And that's, that's the kind of level of depth I go to for me, but you go to a whole nother level of depth that that's got to have come from business and how you understand business and what's important in business. Tell me about your journey to success. Tell me about yeah. those that, that, that I know you work for sun life. Sun America. Sun America, sorry. Yeah. So there you go. You got your, you'd, you'd have got that right, and I get it wrong. Sun America is a life insurance company, yeah? It, it's a financial services company that was sold in 1998 for $18 billion to yeah. um, AIG, which was at that point the platinum insurance company of the world. So insurance is at the heart of Sun America in their beginnings? Um, in their beginnings. Uh, Eli Broad bought the company in 1990. Sorry, in 1988, uh, renamed it. He combined it with KB Home, Coffin and Broad. He, at, at that point, he was only one of three people who had uh, started two Fortune 500 companies, KB Home, Coffin and Broad, and then um, Broad Inc. He combined those two companies. Uh, Sun America is the founder of as well. So those are the two. Um, he combined those as, into Broad Inc. And then he separated them again, I think, in 1991. Uh, Bruce Karras took over and ran KB Home, and then he took over at uh, Sun America. Okay. Annuities are what they sold. Right. So, so you don't wake so up. I, I come from that world. Right. So that's why it resonates with me, you know? Out of the yeah. stuff that you've done, it really resonates with me. We'll talk about beaches in a while because that, that resonates with me too. <laughs> okay. But it, it resonated me that your, your journey was, was essentially at the beginning there. Because I was, I was the life assurance sales guy. Right. You know, I was the guy that was going out there selling, you know, savings plans for people's education and universal right. life and stuff like this. Yeah. And I know you weren't a sales guy. You were, a, you were a lawyer there. Well, everything we do is sales related, and I do a lot of coaching and teaching. So, interviewing, at work, in your personal life, everything we do is selling. So I wasn't selling policies, but I think you always have to sell yourself, and I think extreme preparation is part of that. People react to it. So my journey was, I grew up in Michigan, divorced parents, raised mostly by my mom, uh, struggled financially when we were when we were younger. And I saw that and I didn't like that. I didn't want to be that. Uh, so I wanted to work hard. So for me, the grades were my ticket to success. And there was an aha moment in sixth grade where we actually had letter grades for the first time. And I saw, holy cow, I had a three, eight something, and I didn't even know what that was. So I had all A's, one A minus, and I thought, okay, that's interesting. This is something I can control the outcome of. And so I did well at a private high school. I graduated magna cum laude. I went to University of Michigan. I graduated top 1% of my class. I went to Northwestern Law School. I was somewhere in the top third of my class. Definitely more competitive there with a lot of really <laughs> smart people there. And I definitely wasn't even near that. And by the way, if you're the smartest person in the room, I think you're in the wrong room. Mm. And, and I've said that. I, I always want to be the hardest working, not the uh, smartest person. But came to LA, lost my job five and a half weeks after moving here, had $3,000 in the bank, uh, got my third job, and then said, gosh, I, I, I hate this. And I started plotting my way out. So. 
I had loved reading profiles about successful CEOs from the time I was 14 years old. And I'd always wondered what it would be like to work for one as a right-hand person. So I went on LexisNexis, there was no Google then, I researched them and I did a ton of research. I wrote 300 letters. I had a two bedroom um, apartment. The second bedroom was a letter writing factory. Mm -hmm. And I printed out every one, I highlighted uh, the articles, the jobs they'd ever had. And I got 80 meetings. People said, these people are never gonna meet with you. You're crazy. You do the research, you do the homework. The letter was meant to blow them off their chair. Who wrote this letter? And they all wanted to know. Every single person said, I've never taken a meeting from a cold letter in my life. So a long story short, um, Eli Broad received a letter. I did a lot of research. I blew him off his chair. And this is something that I coach a lot on. Um, write thank you letters. I know, of course, yeah, 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 yeah. Well, I finished the interview. He said they wanted me to take a class at uh, UCLA. Finished the interview, ran to get my car in the parking garage across the street, drove to UCLA, double parked, ran around campus like a crazy person trying to get a catalog, raced back to the apartment, uh, typed my thank you letter, dropped off the catalog and my thank you letter with the receptionist, 57 minutes as I walked out of his office. Now, you could have written a thank you letter the day before or one day later, two days later, the ROI on a thank you letter and the timing and the form and shape is something that people completely overlook. You know, my daughter goes to uh, Cornell. They tell her you should write a thank you letter with one or two days of the meeting. And I told her, Bianca, that's the worst advice I've ever heard in my life. That's a killer. But I ended up working at Sun America for, for, for three years. It was amazing. I was a junior guy in a very senior team, just keeping my heads down. And after a couple of years, I met some guys, uh, very smart tech guys. And we started a company that basically reinvented how content was served on the internet. Faster, cheaper, more reliable. Back in those days when there was a news event, something called a flash crowd would happen. So they would provision for bandwidth like this, but the bandwidth they needed, for example, when uh, Princess Di was killed, every news site went down because they didn't have the bandwidth. If some farmer in Kansas cut a line with a backhoe, half of the country would go out as well. So we had new technology, we solved that problem. Um, there were four founders, I was, I was our VP of uh, biz dev and interesting, everything we do is built on something else. So you think about the future, you think about all these people. Someone said to me when I was going through all of these meetings, you're only gonna get one shot to meet these people, ask for the order. And I didn't ask for the order. I said, oh geez, you know, they're taking the time and they're really busy. So you just wanna meet with them and uh, uh, see what happens. And I, I took that advice. I said, well, that can't be true. I wanna, keep the relationship going and build it and build them. So we started our company and then I wrote to the CEOs who became beta customers who I had a relationship with. I got the job at Sun America. I wrote all the CEOs I met with, here's the job. I got some incredible notes back. I still have them, all my mementos. And we used those relationships to get meetings with the large media companies who became our beta customers and the company's biggest clients. Company did really well. This is kind of crazy. We went, we filed to go public a year after the day that we started the company, incorporated. I, that's crazy, will never happen again in history. It's just a crazy time. Company did well. I left, I started my own VC firm. 
Uh, it's kind of a crazy model, uh, Spencer, which you know. Uh, eight out of 10 deals go to zero. Mm -hmm. And the ones that win, you you um, hopefully will have a good weighted average return. So I've been doing that for a while. I have a real estate company. I started a podcast, as you know. Um, I'm writing a book on extreme preparation and I'm gonna be doing some paid public speaking on extreme preparation as well. But, but extreme preparation has been the core to my success. Um, I've never had a meeting where I wasn't the most prepared person in the room. I've never had a podcast where I wasn't the most prepared person that they had ever talked to. And interestingly in college, I went to a very good school, top 25 school, and there were only five tests in four years I went into not knowing if I was gonna get an A. There were only five you went into that you didn't know there was gonna- I didn't know I was gonna get an A. Not that I wasn't nervous for all of the tests, by the way, because I was, Yeah. right? My podcast, I'm super pro. I get nervous for everyone. And I said, I have to calm down, just meditate for five minutes. Did you minutes. get nervous coming on here? No, because we had a great conversation for okay. 10, 40 minutes before we got going today. <laughs> that was totally cool. I mean, yeah, this is great, but um, no, you do the work and it's, it's true in business as well. If you do the homework in advance, you're gonna have less anxiety. Mm -hmm. when you're going to that meeting. If you know you're going to be prepared and going to be different than the other people these people have met with, what it doesn't matter, sales, uh, interviews, whatever it is, you can be different and more prepared than anyone else and stand out better than, than the rest of the pack. There's, there's a thousand people who are qualified to make that sale or to get that job, but you have to separate yourself and be the top person, I think, by using extreme preparation playbook, I think you can do that. I think, yeah, I mean, I don't disagree with what you're saying. It's that level of preparation can never work against you because you don't need to use it. It's it, if you've got all of that arsenal essentially in your inside pocket, then, you know, you don't need to deploy all of it. You just have it there. So you can never be too prepared. But for me in business, I agree with you in the podcast I don't. I like getting to know somebody. I like learning and being surprised for the first time. It's almost, I find it sometimes sad that, that I'm gonna know the story that I, or I'm gonna get to hear the story that I already know. And I wanna learn, I wanna learn something new about somebody because I think human beings are fascinating. Everyone's got some, some, some part of their story that's, that's unique to them. And when you hear that part and you feel their emotions and what they've been through and the, you know, what, how they suffered, it can really take you into, into their life and their story yourself so that you can feel it too. You, do you, what do you consider yourself? Do you consider yourself as a, a tech investor, a tech entrepreneur, a business guy, an entrepreneur period? What do you, how do you describe yourself? I'm a serial entrepreneur and an entrepreneurial investor. Okay. Let's use this word entrepreneur for a minute. Okay. Because I don't like it. Okay. <laughs> I don't like it one little bit. The reason I don't like it is that when I was, when I was young, that word didn't exist. Can I ask how old you are? I'm 53. We're almost the same. Okay. So oh, 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 yeah, perfect. Yeah. Okay. So we, we had all the same stuff on TV. Yep. I had some English stuff that you didn't have, but we had most of the same stuff. Yeah. So, what, what were entrepreneurs called when you and I were 20 years old? Entrepreneurs, we just didn't hear about it as much. It wasn't as popular. I, I took- Do you, well, no, we, we didn't have that word. I took uh, 
econ in high school and it changed my life. Don Corwin was a teacher and we'd read profiles on these successful CEOs. And yeah, we talked about the GM of companies like Kmart, which ultimately went bankrupt, but GM and Ford being in Detroit, those were the companies. And then we learned about green mailing with Carl Icahn and the corporate raiders. But we also read about people who had started companies. And I thought for me, it was all fascinating, but I did learn that word at 15 or 16, I had a business week subscription at 14. And so I was a little unusual that way. So I did, I did I know that I word, Playboy subscription. but, uh, <laughs> but I didn't have one of those, but I did buy a few, <laughs> um, but you know, it's way more popular today. It's so easy to start a company. I mean, at Michigan, uh, um, no, 19... no, 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 no. Hold on a minute. Yeah. I don't want you to go there. Okay. That word to me, entrepreneur, didn't exist. We had businessmen and we had um, self-employed or we had sole trader. I know. And that was, you know, and nowadays all of these, these kind of like these, I'm starting a business from zero gets this entrepreneur hat or a tag. And to me, it's not an entrepreneur. If you're a, if you're a, a painter, uh, uh, painter and decorators are going to go for me now. But anyway, sorry, guys. If you're a painter and decorator and you have a small business where you pick up contracts here and there doing people's in painting and decorating, are you an entrepreneur? Um, are you an entrepreneur? And, and, and tell me what you believe on this. Are you an entrepreneur if you started a business and you've looked to raise finance or funding of some sort for that business? Does that make you an entrepreneur? Um, are you an entrepreneur because you're a driving instructor and you have your car and you advertise on Facebook and you get customers that want to get their kids through their driving exam? What makes you an entrepreneur? Because I just think this has all kind of become entrepreneur and it's dumbed down the coolness of being an entrepreneur almost. So this is like a multiple choice question where it's A, B, C, D, <laughs> none of the above. In this case, all of the above. Cause I think those all count. I think- Do you? I, I think our perception being experienced and reaching a certain level in our careers is different than most people. So what you truly consider somebody as one and what I truly do is different than I think what a lot of people do as well. I think when you start a company and you assume some degree of risk, then that qualifies. Okay. But I think we're used to reading about people who do start their own companies. I mean, you may start your own PR firm, entrepreneur, you're a plumber and you start your own company entrepreneur. Now it's a little bit more basic and simple than you have a tech company. You're going to raise your first round of financing entrepreneur, obviously, right? I don't think anyone would say you're not at that point. You're leaving a job to start a company entrepreneur, but is it to start a, a one person consulting firm? A lot of people would say, oh, I don't know, but you're going to start a consulting firm and five people are going to leave their jobs to start a company entrepreneur. So I think it all, it, I, I think it depends on the audience. It depends on your level of success experience and where you are in your own life. But I think they all qualify. I think the term inspires people itself to be successful. Even that plumber says I've been making, by the way, a starting plumber these days, the average I think is $70,000 a year. 
people shit all over it. I'm, you know, sorry <laughs> for the you. pun. Sorry <laughs> for the pun. But they make more on yeah. average than a lot of kids coming out of Harvard. Mm -hmm. And they don't have debt, student debt. A lot of uh, students will never pay back their debt or they'll pay it back 10, 20 years in the future. But that person who's been working as a plumber for a large company who then takes the risks, leaves the salary job to go off on his or her own is an entrepreneur. And to call that person one, I think is inspiring. And I think it's inspiring them to think about it and that kind of reframe mind. And I think it will motivate them even more to be successful. Obviously, no one wants to fail. That's a huge motivator. And two, you have to feed your family and pay your rent. That is also another factor. But just to have that title, I think, inspires a lot of people. Okay, so you've just given me a lesson there. I'll respect that. Because <laughs> yeah, I now see it differently. So I appreciate that. Because I, I, I didn't before. But you're right. If you can give them something that can inspire them to go on and create something greater from it, then you're inspiring the entrepreneur aspect to their character and personality, aren't you? You know, to follow up on one more thing, that 23-year-old plumber who goes off on his or her own and gets one client, and then at the end of the year, they have 10 clients, and then they're working for a local company with 30 Toilets in the building and they do well and then they get a referral job that plumber who leaves could have a hundred plumbers working for him or her mm -hmm. in the next five ten years mm -hmm. entrepreneur right that person left and now has created a huge company a small i mean we don't all have to want to create the biggest company we don't all have to want to be sent to millionaires or millionaires i'm not saying we need to do those things a lot of people are just happy making a living and happy having a home but Clearly, that person has created a business, is an entrepreneur years down the line. It's That's how you get started. You brought plumbing up. There's a company in the UK called Pimlico, Pimlico Plumbers, and they're based in London. And they became the most successful plumbing business in the UK from a guy that started out as a plumber. And he just got hundreds of plumbers working for him. And he sold his business last year, I think for a hundred million dollars or whatever it was, a huge amount of money. Tremendous. And uh, as a plumber, so yeah, okay, I'm gonna recap my words. Let's just edit all that bit out. No, I'm <laughs> okay, so when you look at your successes and failures in business, I I wanna know the, 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 the painful lessons that you had, but yeah. I also wanna know some of, the, some of the wins where you sat there and, you know, where you sat there on the armchair at home or in the office or even in the car, because the car was where I used to do it. I'd be in the car going, yes, you know, yes, and punching the ceiling. Tell me about some of those stories. Um, I like to talk more about my failures than the successes, because I think- Well, a you lot can do that on other podcasts, but okay. on this podcast, you're gonna talk about your successes too. Well, sure, but, but I wanna begin with the failures. Please. So. Like I said before, in the venture capital business, you're going to lose seven to eight out mm -hmm. of deals. And I think most firms have that same track record. The batting average is very, very low. Over the years, we invested in one company. Um, I'm not going to mention the name, mm -hmm. but we raised $20 million for that company. And we had great VC firms, great investors, a great board. Um, the investors, you would know all the names, there are four billionaire investors in there, maybe five company raised money on a very big projection. I was at one point the chairman of the board, then someone who was way more qualified than me, who had run a public company, had a $3 billion sale. 
uh, knew more a lot about that business than me, became the chairman. So we raised all this money. The founder, um, our number one factor in backing a company is always the founder. So we look for grit, heart, integrity, mm-hmm. um, work ethic, drive, all, all those things. I mean, obviously the business has to be there. There were a couple of red flags, Spencer, that in your mind, you convince yourself, all right, they're not a big deal. And one of the greatest lessons of that deal that ultimately the company failed was not listening a little more to the red flags, even though they were microscopic. For example, one, as security to a deal with a young founder, I often want the founder to get Keyman life insurance, which is super cheap. So I always do it in the amount of the fundraise. So I'm not sure what life insurance costs today, mm-hmm. but it used to be $600 per million. Mm-hmm. So when you have a 25 or 26 year old founder, the policy is gonna cost $6,000 a year, 5,000. So if the founder dies, we get our money back. Well, my law firm did due diligence on the, on, on the policy and he has to pull the policy. So most people just say, okay, here's the policy. I have it, here it is. He said, well, let me look at the policy. The policy was assigned to his wife. And I learned that and I thought, holy shit. Well, that's a tough mistake to make. You got a lot of papers to sign there. And uh, I was unhappy. So I asked the CEO, uh, the founder, and you could tell I was very nervous. That's a mistake, blamed the insurance agent. I said, all right, I'm gonna get the agent on the phone. The agent was a friend of his, young age. And ultimately when I look back, and, and I even didn't trust it at the time, the agent said, it's my bad. And that that's something I should have overlooked. I, I should have pressed a little more. I should have actually called up, the person was in Denver, the founder was as well. The insurance guy was there. And I basically should have flown there or said, you come here because we're funding you. So you, you look for those little warning signs there and I missed that one. So number one, if there's a, a red flag, don't do it. Number two, don't assume other people have done your due diligence. I've invested small uh, sums of money, um, $100,000 here, 200,000 there, and again, these are, that's a lot of money, but when a company has a round of $10 million or $30 million, I mean, I'm an ant in that deal. Mm-hmm. And I just assume sometimes, well, if this A plus VC firm is in there, there's three other VC firms in there, they've done all the work. Well, I did that maybe 10 years ago and before, and it was a mistake. So those are lessons I've learned that I wouldn't do. On the success side, um, we get lucky. Mark Cuban was on my podcast and he said, to be a billionaire, you have to get lucky. I think whatever success you have, you have to be lucky. So we've, there is a deal called Kalipa Networks that we put money into way back in 1999. I can't even remember what they did, Spencer, but the company went out of business. They did a uh, equi-hire, which means that a company bought Kalipa for nothing and they hired five people there. We'd given up on this deal nine years later. When you get a package in the mail from a law firm, that's a tech law firm like Wilson Sonsini in Silicon Valley, which is I think the top, one of the top VC tech firms up there. 
that's a good package. That means there's something going on. And Kalipa was sold to another company and then Google bought the other company for $750 million. We made 11X on that deal, which was a gift. Some of the deals that you think are the best and the can't misses are the worst. And then you feel really, really dumb. But we had some good ones in there. We had Google and we had Seagate and some other ones. I think we've had at least five, six, seven companies that have exited for over a billion dollars. That doesn't mean we necessarily made a lot of money because we were sometimes the late, uh, the last round of funding where maybe it was a $300 million valuation or $400 million valuation. But we look at a weighted average return in that game. Well, I've been a, a, a judge on many startup uh, kind of like competitions. I've been pitched many times by startups. Is there, and you've been pitched a billion times by us, so I know you've done way more than me. Is there something that you look for in particular when somebody pitches you that that triggers you in the early stage? You know, I'm, I'm a sales guy, so I'm a sucker for a really good sale. Right. And so if somebody comes to me and they pitch something and I know that they've thought through the sales process, you know, they've thought about me being essentially the investor and try to understand how I, how I tick and how I operate. And yeah. they, they present something to me in a way that really engages me. And I know that they're selling it to me. I'm a sucker for having ears open and be prepared to go further. When people pitch me in a very, monotone and and kind of uh, analytical kind of way and uh, you know tell me about why their business is good rather than get me excited about their business then invariably it switches me off and you know I, to my own detriment sometimes as well is there a way of approaching you if somebody wanted to raise money that would 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 work for you and kind of like feed into maybe some of the softer parts of your personality yeah i mean by the way I do have a softer side of my personality. You do? I really? do. <laughs> <laughs> never, I mean, never. <laughs> I'm joking. The interns tell me you're very uh, intimidating. I said, really? really? I, I don't. Yeah, they think I'm intimidating. I mean, my daughter, um, I recently met her boyfriend up in college and my son said, um, dad, um, if I were her boyfriend, I'd be very scared of you. Why, Charlie? You're intimidating. Even if you don't know that, I said, I'm, I'm just a softie. Meanwhile, he and I have become buzz. We text all the time. Um, and I don't think he ever thought that, but I, I, I do know that I can be. And I guess when you're 25 years old and you're coming in to pitch someone who's got a good resume and success, you're just a little nervous. But I jokingly tell people, I think my son asks, you know, dad, what do you do on a daily basis? And I said, Charlie, my biggest job is I'm a bullshit detector because you have all these people coming in and yeah, you get the PowerPoint and they're beautiful and they got all the graphics and then for the resume, they have the logos now. So I don't really tell you what they do. But when I come in, some of the questions are, so what did you do? I ran the ad business for this uh, division of Fox. This happened one, one day, these guys had a good resume. And so I said, well, what do you mean you, you ran it? The guy I think was 28 years old. So I'm sitting there, okay, well, that doesn't make sense. You ran it, what did you do? Okay, well, what was your title? Pause. So I, I can't remember. I said, all right, if you can't remember, you're leaving the office, right? Because if you can't remember the title and people, I mean, I've, ha I've met people with like that and it's over. 
he remembered, and then he, he was a manager of some level. There was a manager, there was a senior manager, assistant director, director. I said, how many VPs were in your group? He said there were six. And there were how many CF, uh, senior VPs on top of that group in uh, the ad section? There were two. So the guy was 30, year, 30 layers down the rung, and you know that person is finished. Mm -hmm. The other, I, and I, I like to lob the softballs first, and then I throw the 100-mile-an-hour fastball right down the middle. And that question is, so what are you paying yourself? There's a range. So we had someone come in there and you could tell he, he hadn't really worked in a long time and he came up with something like $200,000 and he was raising $500,000. I said, we want people who, the answer is, I wanna take as small a salary as possible to support myself, not be anxious, not worry about paying my rent and living and invest all of the other capital we raise in hiring different people and in the company. That's the right answer. So in terms of what I look for, I, like I said, it's all about the people first. They obviously have to have a good idea. They have to be well thought out. And sometimes it's not the answers, it's the way they answer the question. Mm -hmm. We don't know all the answers. I mean, I, if, if I go back and I've tried to do this, how many companies have work that started a, and they didn't go to Z. Most don't stay with A. They have to reinvent their business model, things change. So you have to really kind of know the business and know what you're doing. And again, it's how you answer the questions more than getting the question right. You see you see a lot of money seems to be raised what on the surface of it seems quite easily. Um, the various press releases go out, you know, uh, Picasso is one that sticks in my mind, yeah. you know, $200 million fundraise, one point something billion dollar valuation, 18 months in operation. Yeah. And, and you have a story like that and you think, you know, okay, majority of it was, I think, SoftBank and, uh, that were involved. Uh, and you've got your people that laugh about SoftBank because of the errors they've made and people that don't. But when you, when you, see that kind of stuff and you've got your own business and you think you're gonna go out there and raise money you're like well hey if those guys are raising 200 million after 18 months then then surely you know we could raise 5 million in in you know in six months and they, they get this kind of overconfidence and this belief um there's there's one prop tech business that i that i invested in about 12 months ago which i really believe in the technology yeah but the relationship i have with the founder has evolved into something has become rather frustrating for me and so when they went for their second uh, raise, that raise, they put a value on that, which I didn't agree with. And I'm like, look, you can go out to market and raise the money, okay? Or you've got me that you know has got the money. So we will discuss what I think it's worth. Yeah, but yeah, but hold on a minute. The company's worth this, it's worth that. I said, yeah, but you misunderstand. That money that I would invest in your business wasn't given to me. I went out and sacrificed time with my kids and my family oh. working my ass off to put that money together. So I will invest that money at a value that I deem fit, regardless of what you think your business is worth. Now, if you don't want my money, you go out and find it from somewhere else. They didn't like that. Okay. And in the moment they didn't like that, I thought, hold on a minute here. I'm dealing with people that maybe aren't aligned with me. Yeah. And so it's maybe just step back and get very uncomfortable with every part of that. A lot of people think that trying to raise money isn't so difficult or shouldn't be so difficult because there's lots of people out there do it, particularly in the tech space where these, what we see as outrageous valuations yeah. seem to be kind of shouted about. 
you've obviously been in this space. I have, I mean, I'm an investor, but I've never run a VC or anything like that. Did, did, is it some of it just outlandish and ridiculous and some of it just preposterous or do lots of them have as much merit as they think they do? First of all, I think it's hard to raise money. I don't agree with the proper uh, the proposition that it's simple. I, I think it's very hard. I, I agree. So um, that's the first thing. The, the second thing is I see these rounds and I see seed rounds now of $10 million, $50 million. We're about to start raising money for my beaches company, Sandy. We're building a Yelp for beaches. And if we raise $10 million, I wouldn't know what to do with it. I, I would have no idea what to do with it. What I mean, spend on, yeah. we could spend it, but you have that much money in the bank and you don't need it, you feel pressure to spend it. By the way, if you don't need it, why raise it? It's a dilution and that, that makes no sense. But it amazes me to see the huge rounds and see the valuations. Now, a lot of that now is a thing of the past, right? A lot of these venture firms, SoftBank, the other firms are getting crushed. The public companies in the tech space, you have a lot of them that's lost 90% of their value. Even the biggest companies, more than 50% of their value wiped out. I and mean, we're talking about trillion dollars, trillions of dollars in market cap wiped out. So I think you're seeing the valuations come down, but I, I do think you're gonna see less and less of that. I think you're seeing a lot of retrenching now because of the tech meltdown. I think though now is a good time to start a company. There's a lot of people losing their jobs. Um, Twitter's about to lay off a whole bunch of people. Uh, the startup world, I mean, it took us a f six months to hire a new CTO at uh, uh, Sandy. I wanted someone to come into the office for the DNA. I think the culture is very important. Everyone wanted to work online and we had to basically recruit people to come to Los Angeles and the salaries have gone up 40% in the tech space. So I think, I think it's, it's gonna be a lot more difficult now to raise money. The venture firms, the limited partners in those firms, I think are putting pressure, what's going on, and you're seeing a lot of returns. And, and I, I took a I'm entrepreneur of a tea company that I put money into in Chicago to see uh, Sam Zell. Sam is a guest on my podcast. He's a Forbes 400 person. Um, he was on the original Forbes 400 list in 1982 when it came out. And the entrepreneur was pitching Sam an investment in his tea company. And so we brought in, he brought in six teas. It was hot, he went to the store, we walked into his office in uh, Chicago. Sam is talking to him and then Sam asked about the valuation. And the entrepreneur said to Sam, uh, what's it to you? And Sam looks at him and I thought if Sam's eyes could be flames, this person's entire body would be melted. And Sam said to me, looked him in the eye and he said, never disrespect capital. And I think every penny matters to every investor, to every person, no one wants to lose money. And so I think people today are being a lot more conservative. We are, the investors I know are, and I think there's been a big pause, the valuations have definitely come down and I think they're going to remain down till we have the next euphoria and believe me, it's going to happen. Okay. Last couple of questions. I know we've been sitting talking for a long time, but I want to get your views on a few things. We'll end, we'll end on, on, on the beaches story. I okay. Think, Cause I like, I like, well, I live on a beach, so I like okay. that story. 
tell me what your understanding is, your your relationship is, and your feelings are towards the world of crypto and the metaverse. I have an intern class every summer of 35 students from all kinds of places around now the world. We had a couple of people from London this year. We've had people from one from Dubai. We have, but most of the kids come from the United States. They're 18, mostly 19 through 20, 21 in some cases. The crypto craze was happening in 2017. We had a class of 35 kids that summer and about six of them were into crypto. I knew nothing about it. I thought this is all bullshit, Bitcoin, money laundering. And by the way, I, I'm still waiting for a legitimate use case for cryptocurrency. I'm still waiting for someone to buy something with it. You know, you have the $500 million pizza that someone paid Bitcoin, $500 million pizza that someone used in, nine, in what was it, 2008. I was eight, yeah, okay. Something like that. And so you had all these kids trading crypto and one of the students began the summer with $6,000. He ended with $660,000. And I saw the account. I mean, this was not BS. And so I started looking into it at the time. And again, at that point, it was the last person uh, standing almost, you know, just the hype. You had all these people uh, investing who knew nothing about investing whatsoever. But a lot of these interns made a lot of money. They got me into it. I sat on a couple of crypto advisory boards. I got tokens for that. I learned a little bit about it. I learned a lot about it actually. And I, I, we made about six investments in the crypto space. A lot of them ultimately failed, but we, we were able to, to sell tokens just based on the hype going into those. I mean, these were all public, public tokens at the time. Um, I spoke on a crypto panel at lunchtime at a conference. It must have been 2019, maybe 2018, at one of the largest crypto conferences in Los Angeles. Tim Draper was there. All, all these people were there. And I said at the lunch panel, 99% of these companies are going to go bankrupt and there's going to be class action suits everywhere. And I'm not exaggerating. I think there were a thousand people there. I was booed heavily, but I had seen the program before in the tech space and the meltdown. I mean, we were a part of it. Uh, our company nearly went bankrupt. It went from a $35 billion market cap to a $99 what year million. Was that? Um, the last day of trading in 1999, Akamai was worth $35 billion, which at the time was more than Ford, Chrysler, and GM, the market caps combined. At the low, whenever the meltdown was in 2002, something like that, the company had a market value, I think of, it was $50 million or 40 or $90 million, something like that. It, so you, it and lost, I, you and I were both 30 years old at that time. I was 34. I was no, you 30, born, what year 30, were you 32. It was 30, I was 32 or 33 when we were in public. So maybe by then I was 35. Something okay. like that. So I, I had seen the playbook. I believe in crypto long-term. Okay. Um, I believe it's here to stay. We're still waiting for actual use cases for it. I still haven't seen any that pop, pop in. In terms of the metaverse, great question. So I honestly don't know what to make of it. There's a tremendous amount of hype. I mean, non-fungible tokens were all the hype three years ago. Everyone talking about the apes and all this other stuff. And everyone's hyping it up. And, and look what's happened there. 
um, destruction. Yeah. So um, we'll we'll see what happens. I think there will be a market for non fungible tokens. We'll see what happens on that one in terms of the metaverse. Who knows? It's in its infancy. Do you agree that smart contracts definitely have a future, though. Hundred percent. Yeah. There's no way that 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 that's out of all of it to me the most logical part of it. Hundred percent. Okay. Do you agree? True authentication. Yeah. Okay. Now I live on a beach. I Which live. One? I live in the desert on the Palm Jumeirah in Dubai. Okay. Um, I live in the desert though, so we've got plenty of beaches where we are. Um, all, all around the the area that we are, every coastline is a beach. Tell us about Sandy. Yeah. Tell us about how it started, how it happened, what triggered you to get involved in this? Because I think it's quite interesting that, well, when I first heard about it on one of another episode where you described it, I was like, why has nobody ever thought of this? I couldn't believe that nobody had thought of this before. So take it away. Some of the most interesting companies are the most obvious, just the execution is very difficult to pull off. So the, the research shows that 99% of the world's population love the beach. And the first time I went to the beach where I was uh, disappointed was after college, had really no money, went to Europe on a Ural pass, slept in trains, and then we couldn't wait to get to Nice because everyone said the beaches are super sexy. Uh, I was with some friends, there were nude beaches. So we finally yeah. get there, we had a backpack, no towel, and we <laughs> get there and it was a rocky beach. Yeah. So you can't even lay out. I'm thinking, gosh, that's a... That's ridiculous. Why, why are we here? We made a special trip there. Years later, I was dating my wife, Madison, and we went on a trip to Greece. We were in Mykonos. We want to go to a black sand beach. Uh -huh. So we were staying at a nice hotel. And I only mentioned that because the concierge at the better hotels, no more. Yeah. And so the concierge whipped out a paper map, one that folded into 32 parts and drew on a, with a black Sharpie, a place on the map that didn't even have a road leading there. And she said, when you go out there, I think there's an old barn and you turn left on on a uh, road. So it was 90 degree day. We're in a little Fiat convertible or a mini, super hot. We figure out we're gonna go get some food out there. There's be, be water, we get out there and there's just nothing there whatsoever. There's no food, bathroom, water. And we're thinking, okay. And we finally drive out to what we see is an old barn. There were several old barns. And so I don't know if the audience seen the movie Taken uh, with uh, Liam Neeson, where you go to a foreign country and you get kidnapped and yeah. they know you're coming. And so we have no Wi-Fi, of course, no cell service. We're in the middle of nowhere. And we see what looked to be a road and the road had weeds on top of it, some of which were taller than the car. If you've seen the movie uh, Field of Dreams when you're in the corn stalks, uh -huh. that's what it looked like. And so my wife is more adventurous and younger than I am. And I was thinking, we're gonna get kidnapped and murdered. No one's gonna find our bodies. <laughs> so she convinced us to drive through these weeds. We're plowing them down and we opened up to this big expanse of beautiful black sand and cliffs where we're lying out on these shell rocks, it was gorgeous. And that was the aha moment where I said, gosh, you know, there's gotta be a better way to get information. I went back to the hotel, I typed in beach, it said .gr for Greece, I typed in .us for the US search and there were all just all these mom and pop websites. So I said, there's, there's gotta be a way to create a database of every beach in the world. So I had a, I'm intern at the time, worked on it part-time. We, we found, I don't know, 32 beaches in Greece. And here we are 
Eight years later, we've cataloged over 100 categories of data for over 100,000 beaches in 212 countries. We think we have now 98% of the world's beaches on Sandy, and it's S-A-N-D-E-E.com. Amazing. And so- 100,000 beaches. More than 100,000 beaches. I think we just crossed the 100,000 beaches mark. And how long ago did you start that company? Eight years ago. Okay. But, but we, it's grown slowly, meaning that we hired our first tech person in 2016. And that's kind of when it became a company before it was kind of a side project. And you say, gosh, great idea. Why haven't people done this before? Cause it's very resource intensive. How do we get the data manually? So there's over a hundred different websites we check. Sometimes we go down to the level of there's a beat shack and we'll call the beat shack. A lot of them don't have phone numbers, but we want to know what's there. We look at Google earth. We zoom in. If there's a bathroom, there's a bathroom. Our trademark is choose your beach. So I have five kids. When you have younger kids, you want food, bathroom, and a shower. Most people want to know is there parking, right? So we have free parking and paid parking as two separate categories. Do you have volleyball? Do you, can you surf? Can you swim? Can you sail? Um, we have seven different, seven different kinds of sand. We have seven different colors of sand. There are black sand beaches, purple sand beaches, pink sand beaches. People want to know what's there before they go. So different strokes for different folks. We want people to have more enjoyable times at the beach, pick the best beach for them and avoid wasting very expensive personal vacation days going to the wrong beach, which is something that I think every person has done. When people go on vacation, do you know who they ask first what beaches they should go to? The concierges of the hotels. Okay. We've done polls of over a thousand concierges and there isn't one we've met in any country who can tell you five categories of data for the closest three beaches. And then when they say, oh, you gotta go to this beach, give me six categories of data. Zero, zero, zero. And that's where they're getting their beach information from. Fascinating. And that's a passion project? I mean, entrepreneurs should be passionate about everything they do. Agreed. So I believe Sandy will be a multi-billion dollar company one day. I mean, when you think about Yelp, Yelp got going in 2004. Restaurant reviews, really? Are people really going to care about that? Well, they care a lot. So our model is sponsorship, advertising, paid listings. We're writing 10,000 descriptions for each beach in the world. 10,000, the most popular 10,000 beaches we're writing uh, descriptions for, handwritten descriptions, general information, attractions, hotels, and restaurants. And we're gonna sell those listings to hotels and restaurants. We believe that'll be a 50 to $100 million business per year, not including the sponsorships, the advertising. We're also gonna license our beach data to government tourist boards throughout the world. I met with eight ministers of tourism. These are cabinet level positions in these countries where beach tourism is the most significant or one of the most significant components of GDP in their countries, regions, states. And the first question that I ask, Spencer, is, do you know how many beaches you have? And what's their answer? Four words, every time. They don't know. I have no idea. <laughs> Which is like the CEO of Marriott not knowing how many hotel rooms they have. Yeah. It's crazy. So we think the licensing, our proprietary data is gonna be a very big part of our business as well. So 
it's a passion project, but I think every entrepreneur should have a, a, a I think it passion. sounds like a project and a business that should sponsor the Spencer Lodge podcast. If I'm honest with you, I, think it's, <laughs> <laughs> I will tell you that Sandy is paying a lot of money to sponsor in search of excellence podcast. Uh, but we have a little inside deal where they're paying $0. <laughs> oh, really? Okay. Well, I'll gladly be paid in equity. I don't mind. Okay. <laughs> We're raising money. So I'm happy to show you the deck. <laughs> but look, it's been great chatting to you today. I've really great. enjoyed getting to know you better, both before we started filming and now what out of anything, are your takeaways from this episode is anything that's resonated with you as we've talked stuff through. Well, I think you've given me great perspective and advice on how to build a successful podcast. First, congratulations to you on all the things you've done in your career and in your podcast. But um, I love the in-person style um, and I love the conversational content that we've had today. It's a very different format than my podcast is and you've given me a lot of things to think about here. Okay. This, my, my takeaway from this was something that happened. You know, you said your, the, your daughter's boyfriend could be intimidated by you. Yeah. I could see how you could be intimidating. Uh, I could see that. But then you made an excuse earlier for something. I can't remember what it was right now, but you made an excuse. <laughs> and everything changed with your whole body language in that moment. Everything changed. And it was almost like, ah, we're the same now. And that was an interesting dynamic shift in that one little moment. You know, you're born with a type A personality and I was born intense. I was born very driven. And my mom used to say to me, and she still says it today, don't be so serious all the time. And it, it's interesting, you know, you go to work, you come home and work is fun. I'm lucky I get to do what I, I want to do. I'm in that very fortunate position. And, but you're in the zone at work. I'm in the zone. I mean, I don't take any personal calls when my mom calls or my dad, it's, you know, three minutes. I mean, I'm uh, scheduled some days, 10 meetings a day yeah. where if someone's late, it really messes me up. So I really, in the time where I don't have back-to-back -back meetings, I try to get work done so I don't have to do it at midnight every night. But I, I think, you know, you come home and you're a dad and everyone's making fun of you. And it's fun to be made fun of by your family and your friends, by the way. So I don't take myself uh, too seriously. I like to make fun of myself and I don't mind it when people make fun of me either. <laughs> so I, I think, I think it's great. So I, I appreciate being on your show. I've enjoyed it. I enjoy you. I've enjoyed your show. And uh, again, I'm looking forward to keeping in touch with you. Yeah, for sure. For sure. Randy, thanks for having us. Man. Thank you. I appreciate, appreciate you. you.